Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity Life. Just like XY Advisor, Integrity isn't afraid to ask the hard questions. Like, why does quoting life insurance have to be so darn complicated? Why can't you just do it all online? Why can't underwriting be more consistent? And why can't claiming be just that little bit easier? To find out how Integrity is doing all these things differently and more, head to integritylife.com.au forward slash XY. G'day, Clayton here from XY, chatting with Michael. Mate, thank you so much for coming on. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here, actually. Um, you, your name always is next to some of the most valuable contributions on XY. It has been for many, 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 many years. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me at all that you're actually writing the textbook. You don't get to say this very often, but you're actually writing the book, the textbook on, uh, on ethics and financial planning, along with Dr. Michelle Carl, along with Chilla um, and others. That's a pretty exciting uh, project to be a part of. How, how did you sort of come across that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And uh, look, we, we don't know, but we, we do think it will be uh, the only book in the market, at least at this stage, uh, <laughs> for that. We're, we're sort of uh, aiming to have a lot of that completed around the end of this year, um, look, it, it largely just sort of ca- came about by, um, I, I'd, I'd met in particular Dr. Cull a couple of years ago, I think at one of the uh, FPA conferences um, and, and sort of contacted her and said, well, it doesn't look like anybody else is doing this. Uh, you know, we, we've got some experience and uh, that we can add to this, so let's do it. Um, I'd done one text with uh, LexisNexis, the publisher's, uh, previously, which was uh, sort of quite specifically focused at uh, solicitors and, and lawyers and barristers, uh, and, and then uh, Dr. Carl's contributed to other texts as well with them in the past. So, so we just put together a bit of a, you know, we think this is what it should, could look like, and took it to them, and uh, we were fortunate enough that they said yes. Ah, that's fantastic. It is an interesting topic, ethics in, in financial planning. Do you think ethics in financial planning is different to ethics in any other uh, profession? Uh, I, I don't think it is, but part of the, I guess, the focus of the text, and, and this is why uh, we've sort of gone with that ethics and professional practice is, uh, and, and there has been a lot of movement, obviously, with the, the face here, the code of ethics coming in and the like there, um, but it does all play into uh, that system of professional practice, a lot of which already existed, you know, the, the financial services reform uh, and then FOFA uh, and, and then your, your, your different different sort of uh, you know, disciplinary and re- client restitution bodies. Um, that, yeah, there, there's, you have the ethical requirements and, and a lot of, particularly what Dr. Cull uh, focuses on in the text is um, that, that very sort of wider context and methodologies. Um, but that also then has to be related to well, what are the the rules, the systems and things like that that exist within financial planning. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a strange concept to have to 
codify or, or at least put into a level of regulation and, and to some extent legislation, an ethical framework, considering ethics are rather ethereal in nature, you know, it's doing good. It, it, it's always sort of, I mean, I love, I love what's the, what it's trying to achieve, but it's always a little bit, uh, and I learned this during the FPA's um, ethics course, you know, their, 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 their first subject in, in the CFP. And that is there are different frameworks for what someone considers ethical. Hmm. And, and I always like the, the example that always comes to my mind is utilitarianism versus deontology, which is, you know, like, you know, what's good because it's good because it's good or what's, the best thing for the most amount of people. And those two things can, can sometimes be polar opposites. And so to codify ethics, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And it's not really something that you see in like, so for example, I know that, I know that uh, doctors have the Hippocratic oath and that's essentially been around for a long time. And that's them saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep everyone around me alive for as long as humanly possible. Um, but it doesn't really get too much more complicated than that. You know, like it's just, it's a kind of a simple, it's simple thing in financial planning. However, because there is so much, I guess, uh, complexities in terms of conflicts in, in remuneration and business models and, you know, you know, supporting business models, you know, and parallel sort of professions, mortgage brokering and, and everything that I guess financial planning feeds into that we've got a really large, uh, in fact, a whole body now that's been created and a whole code. And that's really, it's, it's very different to, to what else is out there. Do you think that this was the only way to achieve improvements in quote unquote ethics in, uh, in financial planning? Or, or do you think there's another way or, or, you know, like, I guess the question is, is the, the, the solution that we've chosen to do, do you think it was kind of inevitable or, or would there be anything else out there? I, I think to be honest, Clayton, I probably haven't given that much thought uh, to, to that. And, and the reason for that is uh, we have the system that is there now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so that, that's, uh, and I think I apply this in, in you know, my practice uh, what you know? Why, why does this tax law or this particular social security law actually exist? Um, it, it's interesting to consider and the like there, but but actually, you know, what we need to do, um, there, there are efforts we can go to with lobbying and things like that if we believe the system could be improved. But today we need to work in the system that we have. So that that's probably where um, uh, mo- mo- most of my thought has gone, and and when you sort of go through this process and, and what's in the text is there's very rarely the situation where somebody throws the entire existing system out and starts fresh. What you actually sort of get is these changes and additions over time. And we've certainly seen that in financial planning that what you then need to figure out is well, how do these different parts go together? Mm-hmm. So, so that that's probably more of the focus is what we have got how, how do we sort of, how do we put that together? How do we actually know what the different components are? Because I actually think that's a, a, you know, a, a big step in itself. So there, there, isn't, um, there, there isn't great awareness. Uh, I, I know if, 
at times in writing the text, I've, I've been sitting there thinking, you know, this feels like I'm just telling people to suck eggs. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, uh, yeah, the, the different sort of parts of the Corpse Act on what has to go in an SOA and, um, you know, what your sort of best interest duties are. And then, uh, you know, if you're a member of one of the professional associations that they have their own sort of code of conduct. Um, and so you do have this moment, if you, you're writing it all down, you think, God, you know, is, is this actually useful to anybody? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think then if you sort of step back and, and look at, sort of the, the two audiences there is actually um, largely if we're sitting there in practice, even through the existing training most of us have sort of had, there, there, there hasn't been anything which really sort of sits down and says, actually, here are all the different systems. You sort of just, you pick it up a bit here and there, you get some bits from a you know, professional development day, you get another bit from a briefing from a compliance section. Now, now a lot of the sort of the work that I've done with uh, sort of disciplinary bodies and panels and things like that, I've certainly picked up a lot of it, but you do realise that, um, it, yeah, even if you are an existing practitioner, nobody has really sat down and said, this is the whole system. So, so I do think that has some value for people who are already existing practitioners. Yes. And certainly, um, yeah, it's, it's a fair while now since I was a student not knowing what financial planning was, um, but you know, there, there was a there's a point in time, and, and there will be people going through these courses who don't you know, don't know what that system is. So, um, and, and yeah, there are some very serious implications in in you know, the the standards that you're sort of agreeing to uphold and things like that. Um, that it's actually pretty important to know uh, what what you're doing, what you what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, no, it goes without saying. Um, everyone is interested in uh, in improving advice, and I think that this is it's it's an important step in uh, in really taking financial planning to to the level that it needs to be. I, I think something I I probably say it too much, but it, financial advice is too important not to do well. And so mm. um, and so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this. Um, I, yeah, I always like to maybe just consider the 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 why but i think you're probably right that's maybe being a little bit too philosophical about it it's it's probably more interesting knowing exactly what the situation is right now so it's i mean it's a great great thing that you're uh, that you're a part of doing there um you mentioned there was a time when you were a student you didn't know what financial planning was i'm kind of interested what how did you get into financial advice like did you study it at university or what's the story yeah i definitely didn't study financial advice at university um, because I, I, I know that I actually at one point went to my university uh, and said well, at the time was, well, uh, is this course, uh, you know, it's now RG146, but it was back then it was uh, PS, which I think was for policy statement 146. And I said, look, is the course compliant? And they said, PS what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I, the the way I sort of got into this is I was doing a, a commerce degree at university. Uh, it, it's effectively a banking degree, um, it, which was quite handy as it turns out um, in the global financial crisis, which was very banking related. Um, and, and I saw a job ad for a power plan. Um, and I distinctly remember thinking, what's a power planner? Uh, I, I must've done some, some Googling, uh, then because I, I somehow got from there to I'm definitely qualified for that job 
uh, I'd better submit an application. Um, I, I, I did actually get an interview. Um, I can rem I think it was all very quick because I can remember being called and they said, you know, can you come in this afternoon? I said, I can. I am dressed for university, not for a job application. <laughs> uh, they said, don't worry about that, come in. Um, they didn't give me the job. Uh, they did give it to somebody who knew what it was the day before. <laughs> uh, but but the, uh, the practitioner there, uh, a fellow called uh, Philip Bash, was uh, actually very generous with his time uh, and sort of explained what it all was, what they did. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it was about a 45-minute to an hour interview, uh, which was very generous for a fellow who you know, probably had worked out five minutes in that I wasn't going to be the, the successful applicant. Um, and, and, and that, that was actually there where I said, okay, look, I was sort of doing this degree and I was working and studying part time. I, I knew I was interested in numbers and money sort of stuff, but that was about as much direction as it had. Um, but it was actually you know, that sort of interview where I thought, okay, this sounds really good. This is what I want to get into. Um, so then started sort of channeling, uh, you know, all those efforts, um, and, and I was working in the, uh, the the Commonwealth Public Service at the time, started applying for jobs as a bit of a sort of transition there with the body that looks after all the, the public sector and the military defined benefits superannuation scheme. So that, that was where I sort of thought, okay, this is, this is where I'm going to sort of push this. Wow. So did you say you were working in a sector uh, like for the government that dealt with the defined benefits? That, that's where I sort of went to. When I first started, I was working um, just for a Department of Defence, just you know, paying bills and, and stuff like that. Uh, finance related, but very you know, really quite basic, right? Um, but, but not specifically in financial planning. But when I sort of thought, okay, well, now I know what this is and I want to sort of get towards that, I thought, well, a logical step is I can stay in government for a while but move into this role where... Uh, it's looking specifically at superannuation, and, and yeah, that that was uh, at that stage. That was before they had any of the other. You know, they now have uh, modern accumulation type schemes, but it was all yes. exactly all defined benefit then. So yeah, yeah. Moved, moved over to there. the um, the Australian Defence Defence Force defined benefit is one of now they're all crazy, but that's one of the more crazier ones from memory. I for about uh, almost twelve months, I worked a lot with defined benefits and yeah. I, I actually find them quite intellectually stimulating because of how ridiculous and complicated for no reason that they are and the amount of sort of competing and overlapping rules that they just have internally for seemingly nonsensical reasons and uh, but just knowing that these things exist like that that hilarious 54 or 53 11 or whatever that strategy mm. with the CSS and things like that. Like if you retire one month before you're meant to, you know, you get these extra things and it's all, it's all, uh, I remember it being quite, it, it was intellectually uh, stimulating. So you, you've, you've gone into financial planning and then with, with a strong tilt towards defined benefits. Yeah, that, that's certainly, that's where my first uh, experience was. Uh, and, and my role was largely, uh, you know, on the phones in their sort of call centre. So uh, it, it was a fantastic way to start. Oh, yeah. Um, because uh, yeah, you learn really, really quickly uh, when people are calling up with these questions. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, I think one skill that you pick up that 
has worked, you know, has really sort of carried through uh, is the answer of, I don't know, but I'll find out. Yeah. Because especially in defined benefits <laughs> and especially when you're new, but you never know every answer off the top of your head. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What you can do is you can find the answer and hopefully, particularly for those ones that come up quite regularly, you, know, you start to um, store, store a lot of that away. Um, I can tell you to this day that I think it was in about 2005, but um, $129,751 <laughs> was the uh, amount of the old, uh, you know, what's now become the taxable tax component that you could withdraw before you paid tax because I answered that question every day for a year. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that funny things like that stick. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> But yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that one. That is so funny. Um, awesome. Yeah. So uh, obviously, like coming at advice from from this, I guess, strong technical background. Um, so how did you make that transition? Did did you then ever end up working as a power planner, or what was the the journey into becoming an advisor? Yeah, absolutely. I I was definitely there uh, enjoying the work I did, but always wanted to get into finance and planning. Um, I think that they, they had people who actually sort of went out and did presentations and seminars uh, to, to the members of those schemes, but that often sort of involved liaising with financial planners. Mm. Um, so I, I do know there was uh, one of the presentation team was sort of going out and meeting with somebody local and I said, uh, I'm coming with you, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I think I strongly expressed my desire to move into the sector um, and, and picked up a, a role that way. So. <laughs> That's sensational. Did, so, so uh, power planner first, or straight into financial planning? You know, so, so um, my first yeah, job was was power planning uh, almost exclusively, and, and and then sort of moved into a uh, another role after a couple of years, uh, which uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have had probably similar career moves. Yeah. On day one, it was probably ninety nine percent power planning and one percent financial planning, and, yeah. and that ratio just. Uh, shifted over time effectively mate that's so cool yeah um when when you when you started in financial advice as a power planner were were the people that you worked with were they clear on the journey on how to become a financial planner or or was it just simply you're a power planner and then that's that's kind of the job and it doesn't ever change because how to become a financial planner it's a little bit different now because the professional year is here so so there's now a little bit of a codified journey um but before the professional year existed it was really like you know put your tongue on your finger and hold your finger up in the air you know like how, how do i do this kind of thing what did you did you were you given like a, a bit of a, a clear path into the financial planner role or was it something that you had to uh leave the company to to do or how did that work you know I, i've always worked for uh comparatively quite small firms. So there was never a sort of defined path or anything like that. But I think also with the small firms, um, you know, I think largely from day one, uh, I was pretty, you know, I would attend meetings uh, and, and I wasn't just expected to sit in the corner and not say anything. Um, I, it was expected that I would sort of contribute to those. Uh, so I think you, you did a lot of that. Uh, and, and, and then really the transition uh, in, in the role where I sort of really did move much more into financial planning and, and less 
para planning uh, was because just you know within that firm uh, people who were in full-time advice roles left there was people who then needed to be looked after uh, and and I was fortunate enough to have been given that opportunity uh, and then competent competent enough to not uh, mess up the opportunity and and it just sort of went from there very cool very cool um, and so how long now have you been in financial advice including paraplan yeah so the whole lot's probably 15 or 16 years now um, I, I think uh, because because the uh, the, the way it was set up with those defined benefit super schemes, uh, we were authorised representatives. So you can go on the financial advisor register and see when I was first <laughs> authorised, which uh, yeah was only a couple of months after I started in that. So so it actually sort of it, it's a pretty well kept record. Right, no, fair enough. Um, and so you, you've obviously got your own company now. Um, and you've recently gone through a licensee change about six months ago. Can you walk us through um, what that was like? I, I, I guess the most important question here is how did you choose your new license? Because one of the things that we're sitting around thinking about at XY is how do we give some clarity to that question? Like we would love to help. We just don't really know what to do. So how did you make the decision on where you wanted to move? Uh, I'm probably a terrible example for, <laughs> for that, uh, Clayton, because it was just a case that the, the licensing and franchising arrangements that I had were um, shutting down. Uh, and, and so I, I was looking at alternatives uh, and, and I've joined a licensee called uh, Wealth Market um, and, and I, I was talking to them because I knew some of the people involved and it was very uh, people-driven. They were people that I'd worked with in the past and they were involved with Wealth Market. So I uh, sort of went, on, uh, went along. Uh, yeah, and and their, their head office is in Sydney. I'm here in Canberra. So uh, virtually met with the, the CEO, Matt, and he sort of outlined a lot of their approach, the very, uh, in particular, uh, technology sort of hungry and focused about how we can use that to... Uh, improve client service and run uh, you know, efficient practices. Um, so that that was my one uh, you know, one assessment of a potential new licensee. I said, <laughs> I know a lot of the people in the background. Um, I like what you're saying about how you're running it. Yeah, excellent. Let's let's get it done. So um, that 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 has worked out very well for me. That probably doesn't. Uh, <laughs> give you much of a sort of a, a process there for yeah, you know, replicating I, I, it as a framework. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it is, I can see now, particularly having been through it, how really difficult it would be to evaluate that oh, if man. you didn't have that. I, I was relying entirely on, I, I know who some of the key people involved are uh, and, and I, I trust them and what they're trying to build and so I'm going to go with that. Um, yes. Now, if you're just evaluating somebody you saw on LinkedIn or somebody on XY said you should talk to these people, that that's that's a much harder job. So. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, and yet you get huge amount of, of licensee changes. Like depending on how, um, I mean, the trend has obviously been over quite a while now is to move into smaller or self-license. That's just been the trend over quite a number of years. But obviously with IWF 
purchasing, you know, a bunch of purchases. They're now essentially the largest financial services company in Australia. Um, they obviously have a different view. They're obviously thinking um, that it's going to turn back the other way. Who knows? I certainly don't know. Um, but though I think the questions on how to choose a license is a, a, a question that needs help solving. I think till, till there's no more licenses. I think, mm. I think there's always going to be people looking for new licenses. And I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're stuck on a challenge that we would like to solve and we really would like to solve that. So uh, who knows? We, we might come up with something. Um, now, with, in, in regards to the, the work that you do with the FPA, um, actually, here's, before I get to, to that, um, do you know the PIFA guys by any chance? Because I know that they're Canberra-based. Um, no, I sort of yeah, know of them. I, I do know that their sort of president is, uh, yeah, runs his practice here in Canberra. I did listen to the podcast that you did with him, um, but no, I actually haven't sort of come across Daniel uh, yeah, in person, which, I mean, like Canberra is a small place and, and yeah. financial planning, yeah, a lot of us know each other. Um, so it, it is somewhat of a surprise, but no, I haven't. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that is a surprise. Yeah. Um, because obviously like with, with your, and, and I see it on, on XY, the platform it's, itself, like your, your technical expertise, I mean, you're just consistently well and truly up the top there with, you know, the, the most, highly regarded people in terms of, you know, the, the answers to the questions that you provide. And um, it, obviously you're a very technically minded advisor. Um, yeah. Just it, it, when I, when I was speaking, speaking to Daniel um, from P5, I was, I was thinking maybe that there would, there would be an association there. Uh, sorry, that's probably the wrong word to use. Maybe there's a, an existing, uh, you know, a friendship or relationship there because of how small financial planning in ACT is uh, in Canberra is. So, uh, so who knows? We might be able to put an event on and uh, and and get down there. Um, but you are doing work with, uh, or you have done some some of the, some work with the FBA uh, with the conduct reviews and, and things like that. Um, what do you see as a challenge for financial planners in terms of? Well, what are some common mistakes uh, do you think financial planners do make in their conduct, so to speak? That's a really good question. I think there's there's probably there's a, a particular sort of case. This wasn't one of the financial planning ones that sort of springs to to mind, and it was where um, you know there, there had ended up being a complaint. There was uh, advice provided in relation to a self managed super fund, uh, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, and a property. You know, all, all I think quite high risk areas of advice. You know, they're, they're just when you've got leverage involved, when you've got all the technicalities of a self-managed super fund. Uh, and in this case, there was no file note made of the meeting where the advice was presented to the client. So I, I do think that there are a lot of uh, disputes and, and the like that come down to a failure of process as much as uh, you know, somebody necessarily you know, intending to give really poor, conflicted advice. Mm. Um, th th there's also part of uh, writing the book is I've uh, read through all of the um, the AFCA decisions for the last two financial years as they relate to uh, advice. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah, well, um, really riveting stuff. <laughs> uh, I do actually find it interesting. I'm aware that's the, probably not uh, that commonly held a view. Um, but, but for example, one, one of the uh, sort of types of cases that you saw in the, these uh, you know, disputes, and, and it's something that I think most practitioners would be quite familiar with, is where you might have seen a couple who were um, not necessarily right at retirement age, but uh, you know, maybe sort of 45 to 50, uh, and, and they still had a, you know, a reasonable whack of uh, you know, debt in terms of mortgages, maybe on investment properties and things like that, and you know, not an overwhelming amount of super. Mm. Uh, and, and in particular, they were talking about uh, insurance. Uh, and, and I think every practitioner knows that particularly at that, um, when, when somebody is at that age, um, there's, you know, there, there's not that much of an opportunity to lock in really low cost level premiums. So you start getting into this pretty uh, difficult compromise and trade-off between, well, how much cover do I need, you know, to, to provide for kids, to cover mortgages, things like that, you know, real, real need that exists for, for insurance uh, versus what are the resources that I have available to pay for that? Yes, uh, and and then particularly when it comes to using super, you know, what's that trade-off between getting myself insurance I need and and the impact that then has on uh, my retirement? Yes, that, that that's something that I think every practitioner who's been doing this for a while w- will have worked with somebody where there there are some really difficult trade-offs and decisions to be made. Yeah, uh, and what you see in those disputes is you know, six, seven, and eight years after the fact is that's when people start saying, well, hold on, I'm not sure that we got this right. And, and that's where you get a huge variation in you know, how well those trade-offs and discussions were had with the client, uh, but, but also documented uh, in, in a way that it becomes, you know, that it is obvious to somebody who, who is looking at this many years later that they can then sort of recreate, well, what did happen here yes. um, and, and that's where you see ones where you know there, there's there's just very very little documentation uh, and it becomes very difficult you can imagine for somebody to, to then say no, no look we did have all these really tough discussions they really wanted the insurance um, ultimately it comes down to well how can we prove that how, how can we see what sort of clues are that that might have happened and often the answer is there's very little mm-hmm. um, now, you would occasionally see one of these disputes where uh, the practitioner had done an outstanding job and, and, you know, the systems were there of capturing, you know, that, that real, real genuine financial planning discussion of client, I'm applying my expertise here to tell you, you know, what insurance costs, the sorts of things you need. What we can see here is that you have some really difficult trade-offs to make and let's yeah. work together using, you know, my, my knowledge, my training, uh, but also your personal values and decisions to, you know, to come to that point where we submit an application saying, give me this much you know, life insurance. Um, there, there, there are examples out there where that has been really well done um, and, and that you then have a dispute where, where somebody is looking at that and saying, um, no, the, the, the situation that, that has occurred was it was reasonable advice about a hard decision 
that that's that's I think one of the real sort of key distinctions there is, uh, and and once again that comes a little bit down to what what is the practitioner's sort of knowledge and the the thought that they've given to that, but also it's what are the systems that either they'd set up for themselves or yeah. you know a licensee may have uh, provided for them. Yeah, that's a really good insight. So process is a typical conduct problem. So let, let actually on that, and, and I think it's a really good example of, um, you know, the client coming back, say almost a decade later and saying the impact to my superannuation was larger than I anticipated. I received, you know, sure I received protection during that time, but nothing tangible. And so I feel like I've been uh, ripped off. What's the best, well, maybe not even the best, but what's like, what's a really good way to capture that? Like, is there, is there a table that can be used or is it just simply qualitative? Is it a recorded conversation? Like to your mind, what is the best, uh, what, what's the best practice with making sure your process is really good? Well, I, I think you, you probably touched on two things there because the first thing is the conversation actually has to happen. Oh God, yes. Uh, and uh, and, and, and I know that seems obvious, but actually one of the things that it's really easy for us to lose sight of uh, is all of the, those, those little subconscious thoughts that we go through in, in making a, an assessment and a recommendation, uh, and, and they're quite you know, second nature and the like to us because you know, this is what we do in the space that we live in all day, every day. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things we do actually need to remind ourselves is is to talk to the client about that because it's actually quite easy to to really skip over and gloss over uh, things because you are experienced. Um, and and once again, if you then imagine, you you might have thought about a lot of things, and then if you think about a a, a person, a client sitting there saying, "Well, you know, you never told me that," and mm. and, and and that's where I think that that first part is that might be a function of you do have to, you, you should tell them and you should have those conversations with them. Um, and that might not be malintent that sort of leads you to not having it. It's just because it seems small to us because we're good at it and because we know it. But, but once again, yeah, this is the first time that that client has probably approached that situation. It might be the hundredth for us. Um, so, so there is that first step of, yeah, actually having it and doing it, Re- remembering that these things are substantial and also that the client has a, has a, has a role and has a say, um, yeah. but, but they, they need to be informed. Um, you know, I, I think then that question of, well, what do you use to cap- capture it? I think any of the methods you've really spoken of can work. Um, you know, I think when you're communicating it, you want to be doing it in a way that, uh, you know, resonates with the, the client themselves. You can you can sort of capture that any old way, um, but I, I think there's probably an element too of, of applying that professional judgment to say what are the what are the big things and, and really the really important decisions and considerations that I need to you know, draw out of what is inevitably a very large piece of advice. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the length of the statement of advice, but most of the time when we're giving advice to somebody, we cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, and then part of it is saying, well, okay, what are the, you know, the two, three, the five, the really big things, decisions, 
or, or even you know the assumptions that could affect whether or not this goes well or not um, and how have I then brought that to the fore you know the made sure that they're they're really aware um, that this is an important part of it yeah which is I mean it's such a huge part of financial planning is making sure someone um, is comfortable and 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 is receiving value and and but realistically it's getting these conversations correct that is such a it makes financial advice financial advice at the mm. end of the day like that that being able to have those conversations and helping your client make the right decision there is ultimately uh, what you're getting paid for so having making sure you're having those conversations and doing it correctly i think is it's a really good point yeah like I do sort of gloss over that, but you're exactly right. Like make sure you're spending the time having those basic conversations and multiple times a day with everyone because don't skip over it in your head. And, and that's a really good point. And um, go back to the, the, the great gentleman that introduced you to financial planning, you know, spending his time teaching you that that's a sign of a great advisor, someone who's just sitting down and explaining what the role in the job is. Um, whereas he could have just said, oh, you're not right, you know, after, after five minutes, but yeah, it's a very good attribute of, of a good financial planner. And sort of just to, um, you know, wrap up with, with the work that you do, it's very technical minded and, and you've got a finger on a pulse, I think substantially more than many advisors, just because of how proactive you are in this space. What do you see for the next 12 months and maybe five years in terms of advice? Are you, are you bullish or, or. Do you see more problems on the horizon or, or what, where are you sitting at as, in, as an industry as a whole? I think the, the ultimate positive factor is that uh, you know, the need for assistance is there and it's going to continue to, to be there. If we look at somebody's superannuation in isolation, that might be a little bit simple. But you ultimately end up looking at their superannuation and how that relates to their insurance and maybe their you know, age pension. Uh, and then you start to bring the family dynamics into it. When you start to stack a couple of otherwise simple things together, it becomes complicated. And there are people out there that uh, you know, need that assistance. Um, I, I, we're obviously seeing a drop in the number of advisors. Um, so so that, that is going to mean that, you know, on a per advisor basis, there are more people that want their help. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I don't think uh, financial planning is going away. Um, you know, they're, they're, everybody then needs to, uh, you know, be running a a practice that is you know, paying them fairly for the work that they're they're doing. There, there is challenges around uh, you know, doing that in general, and and then people who you know, might have to transition from. A business model that used to work to it to a new one um, so so I, I wouldn't downplay that but you only have to look in in media and, and talk to people and, and realize that people really want help they've got other things uh, that they want to do with their lives um, they're not actually all that interested in the definition of assets in the Social Security Act I mean I don't know why it's fascinating um, but uh, that's that's here to stay hundred percent, mate. Well, very good. Well, uh, look, it, it's something that I've been uh, looking forward to is having you on this podcast for a while, mate. And so thank you really for spending the time just to talk us through. It's always interesting when, when you, you know, you see someone on the platform, but you get to chat to them face to face like this. So it's, uh, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you. No, that's, um, that's all right. And I, I will slip in uh, 
one plug very quickly. Please. Uh, you can uh, pre-register if you'd like to hear when the book is available. Um, you just need to go to michaelmiller.help forward slash book. Uh, you can put in your, your details there. Uh, and when it is available, um, we'll let you know. Um, I don't know what process there is for signed copies and I don't know if there's much desire either. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, flick me an email if, uh, if, if that's something you really want. Uh, and otherwise I'll, uh, I'll get back to writing. It's pretty close, but it's, uh, it's not done yet. <laughs> oh, very awesome. No, we'll make sure we include the link in the, uh, in the podcast notes as well. So, mate, thank you very, very much for coming on. No worries. Thanks, Clayton. Cheers.